And then cue the Baudrillard mix. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our coterie of guests today, we just want to mention we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing us a dollar a month there, or if not, maybe leave us an awesome review on iTunes. Either way, we appreciate y'all. We've got the entire Acid Horizon crew joining Taylor and I today to discuss their new book, Anti-Oculus, A Philosophy Escape. So welcome back to the show, you all. Fantastic Thank to be you. here. Thank you very much, Cooper. It's, it's a pleasure always. What was the process like for writing this book? How do you divide up the labor? What's the division of labor like for three lovely, <clears throat> brilliant folks like yourselves to write a book like this? Each of us were quite a crowd, so you know it was <laughs> it was very much. But basically, we were approached to write the book essentially as kind of a summary of all of the directions that our collective reading for you because know, the episode format is. We read a text, we discuss it, we have a guest on talk about a book, and it always tended to go in certain directions. And essentially what uh, Carl over at Repeater asked us to do was to write something like, something that summarizes kind of our pedagogical approach as well as our general research approach to putting out episodes. So the thing we originally pitched was something like a conceptual toolkit or like a, a user manuals for, for concepts that we sort of create to summarize certain philosophical tensions and particularly around ideas of cybernetics and, and control. A lot of it developed originally out of what became chapter three, which is a piece called The Counterinsurgency of the Eye, The Anti-Ocular Insurgency, which is basically a text written in the style of, sort of half-mockingly, a consultancy firm like McKinsey mixed with uh, the US military's FM3-24 sort of basic counterinsurgency manual, basically giving like a list and history of the ways in which identity is policed and constructed in advance, and in being constructed is policed, and all the apparatuses that you can go through with them, uh, and the examples. So we give ex the examples typically are, you know, sort of uh, ableism, uh, sort of the apparatuses of gender and sexuation, of course, transphobia is a part of that, the history of race as a concept, drawing on people like you know, Lewis Gordon, Cedric Robinson, and sort of tidying those up into like a field manual of, here's how these apparatuses work, here are their limits, and here's the history of their operation. And from that, it just became a wider thing of, well, we've written sort of the, if you write a sort of a manual for something, in fulfilling that concept, it's actually quite a Hegelian concept, really. You know, you come to the end of its its limits. So you get to the limit of a concept, and therefore a limit presupposes what's outside of it, what it limits as well. So by going to the limit of that apparatus, you can therefore find its weak points. You can reverse engineer and escape. And then the, that theme of escape sort of flew out of control and spread into all of the other chapters, which I guess we'll get into uh, today. But it bears mentioning, I think, 
that early on in the pandemic, maybe it was around May or June, Adam went down this paranoiac spiral, only which his blog posts saved him from. And if I remember correctly, he wrote the original blog post. Wasn't it counterinsurgency of the eye? Or like yeah, that maybe, title? Maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. say something about that. Well, that was because in lockdown, British people are fucking snitches, uh, especially in sort of suburbia, where I was living at the time, having sort of a tactical retreat, like <laughs> a really bad sort of living situation. And the, the police during the lockdown at some point had to s- tell people to stop snitching on each other, you know. You took a, a walk longer than two hours a day. You went to the shops, and I don't think that was essential. And so it was a very paranoiac mode, especially with the over-policing happening in parts of the UK, especially around poorer and especially uh, sort of black communities over-policing there. The extreme powers to shut down people you know, going to parks and stuff. It wasn't necessarily a COVID conspiracy text, but it was definitely drawing from, because I was very paranoid about getting the virus. I was paranoid about sort of going outside and stuff. And it was, it was a very sort of paranoiac time. I just got me thinking about the function of recognition in relation to policing. And then, you know, then then when things started easing down a little bit, well, of course, the pandemic's still ongoing. I thought, well, let's actually make something of it. Rather than being a theory fiction, let's make it into a vehicle for generating concepts. So, for example, talking about facial recognition technology and sort of the racial uh, ontology that presupposes, as well as sort of the transphobic ontologies that presupposes, giving the idea of, essentializing essentialist observable recognitive categories and also the limits of recognition where paranoia kind of fails sometimes in being paranoid you kind of obscure you get too overprotective or too overvigilant or too, you lash out and you can't see sort of the, the enemy in plain sight and i want to say, write something in a way on the perspective of that enemy so the, the big example i always give is uh, the haitian revolution where they fundamentally the, sort of the white slavers cannot recognize the insurgent consciousness bubbling up amongst the, the obeyer practitioners, people like Mackendell, for them, it, you know, they recognize it in these schemas of Christian and non-Christian, Christian satanic. And so they can't recognize the language, the practices. And these are the things that end up sort of boiling over into the insurgent consciousness uh, that, that eventually fulfills itself in the Haitian Revolution. It's also critiquing certain readings of like Hegel, which say that, you know, Haiti is some sort of universalist fulfillment of Hegelian dialectical philosophy or freedom in this great romantic enlightenment tradition. Uh, but yeah, that's going off a bit of a ramble there. <laughs> I don't know, Will, do you want to say a few things too about the writing process before I jump in? Okay, so, I mean, obviously, going astray has taken like so many different forms. Obviously, the Antioculus version was a much bigger project than I initially thought it would be. So, I mean, my... So one of the things, and this is not to just hammer on about the centrality of the Iris document in this book, but like my approach to philosophy, at least at the level of counterinsurgency, kind of fundamentally changed after counterinsurgency of the eye. You know, there are kind of essays that float around going astray that informed the development of that. And so like the writing process was very much an echo of the way in which I think we've in, we've influenced each other just in in kind of being in this project together for so long. Like, none of us are the same person that we were in 2020, I don't think. I really do think that it's because of these encounters that we think that the way that we do. My work has changed qualitatively so much. And the way in which I approach questions of biopolitics is 
I think, far more delicate, but far more polemical than it was prior to to engaging with folks like Adam and Craig. You know, when we sat down and wrote the introduction, the idiosyncrasies of Acid Horizon, I think, are the most present in that introduction. People who listen or engage with us, even if just online, will be able to single out whose voice is piercing through and who's being held back. And in a certain (laughs) sense, part of this project is kind of harnessing harnessing the particular forces and energies that each of us have as writers and knowing when to sort of put them in the background. Because the way in which, for example, ableism perforates through kind of the the surface of Adam's chapters, or well, chapter, on the eye is, you know, deeply informed by the conversations that that we've had, or at least they better be. But at the same time, the way in which I deal with, for example, the tool Prison Revolt was informed by like a midnight conversation that Adam and I had when Intolerable was first published. We were sending pictures because like I was able to get it, but it was a very difficult text to actually get in the UK at the time. And I was just sending him pictures of pages, you know, and that was when we realized precisely what was misinterpreted about reversibility in Foucault's account of power relations is reversibility so often is tethered to an account of the demos, especially in cosmopolitan readings of Foucault and Deleuze, where I think even though we're being far more brass, I dare say that in those moments, we were able to find clarity about our own work. So, you know, writing process, I don't really think it it was like that. I think it's a byproduct of conversation. I, I don't really think that there was like a conventional singular writing process because some of us came with materials that were partially complete. Some of us needed, you know, a lot of, like I certainly needed a lot of grace and assistance, especially in uh, the sections on Sogain, which are, you know, which were, I think, the most research intense of my chapter and also like were finished like almost last minute, you know, I remember like racing home and like just looking at these old ableist texts on treatment and just knowing that like that was going to be my evening. Being able to work through those issues and fears with Adam was helpful. And obviously Craig, even though, you know, I'm the Foucauldian, Craig likes to joke that I'm the most Oedipalized of all of us. So Craig always comes in as sort of a fatherly figure theoretically for me. And essentially allowed me to understand what going astray actually meant. <laughs> like, like it didn't get defined until I was sitting on the stairs on like a telegram call walking out the house. And it's it's like, no, 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 what you're giving is, a, is an account of flourishing that has nothing to do necessarily with a primordial opposition. So like just speaking from my experience, like going astray as a text doesn't occur without acid horizon and it doesn't occur without the conversations that i've been able to have with my conspirators recently we're doing the nietzsche and philosophy reading group and i just reread for maybe the third time now the third chapter on critique and i knew that we were preparing for this interview and as i was reading it when i read deleuze's bit on what is versus which one 
the sort of metaphysical question. I think Acid Horizon really instantiates a very strong example of why we should use this question of which, I'm sorry, which one versus what is. If, if someone were, were to ask, what is Acid Horizon? What is anti-Oculus, a philosophy of escape? Really, the question is, which one is Acid Horizon? Because within the book, you know, as Adam and Will both said, it's not just that Craig's voice is coming through or Adam's or Will's. I mean, we really had the privilege and the pleasure of being able to engender and embody each other's voices and hearing them come in as mediators. So for my part in writing the book, I had been taking notes for a while on just a project that was very amorphous that I thought I was going to incorporate into Anti-Oculus. And it really wasn't until Adam and Will had about 95% of their writing done that I even came into it. I mean, I was always reading and commenting, and actually that was kind of hard to do because behind the scenes, I'm the one who's just editing the podcast. I'm working with Repeater and Zero and doing videos for them, just trying to keep my little design shop running and just try to keep the whole operation running as I see these two virtuosos just pumping out blog posts week after week. I realized that I have like a pretty serious task here. You know, I had been out of academia for a long, long time. I was a teacher and stuff and always writing. But I realized that I needed to be inspired in the true sense of the word, that I needed to have a spirit going into writing what I was writing. And the chapter, The Imageless Image, is predominantly mine. I can lay claim to it. But to say that it belongs to me would be false in the sense that there are many different powers and images and drives, if you will, taking over at various points. Even the inclusion of Marguerite Perrette comes from both Will and Adam's interest in her. And that's somebody that I hadn't encountered. And, but when I, when I did read up on her, I was like, you know what? She is kind of an avatar for this, this chapter. And so I think it would be very right to include her. And what I wanted to do was the sort of approach that I took from an individual standpoint, like the way that I wanted to grow or explore was I wanted to stage a confrontation, particularly between Deleuze's work and the work of James Hillman and psychoanalysis, you know, more broadly, particularly Jung and Freud, not so much Lacan in this case, although he's kind of he's kind of functioning in the background. I also wanted to do something with concepts in Deleuze's work in particular that aren't particularly enunciated or emphasized, namely the concept of the crystal image that we see in various places, the concept of God, what else? Oh, of creative involution. Is something that I wanted to get involved with, and also just becoming Dash, becoming imperceptible, becoming animal, and just to see if I could create some sort of weird alchemy between all of the, the writings and conversations and episodes. And one can exaggerate here, but like it was like long walks and meditations on just thinking about this sort of inchoate image of what this chapter would look like you know, eventually brought it to bear in the form of the imageless image. And, and, and perhaps we can talk about that as we get more into the weeds. But I thought what the book needed more than anything was a metaphysics or a critical metaphysics that also had an epistemological basis to it. Because what we're talking about is cybernetics and the way that the truth of an entity, of a life, becomes registered on a cybernetic tablet somewhere. And how is that truth constituted? And if we're going to do a philosophy of escape, we better figure out the truth conditions by which some something or someone or an entity can evade the truth. Did you, as part of your, I guess, 
process for the chapter, how much did you draw from the cinema books just out of curiosity, Craig? Oh, me personally? Yeah. Actually, um, a fair bit, which you might have noticed. But oddly enough, I don't I don't think I mentioned the cinema books very right, much. Yeah. Also, another book that functions in the background that I didn't mention once, but realized I only needed one sentence from was uh, Bergson's Matter and Memory. I had taken extensive notes on that. There's a few things, like even the Nietzsche book is like pretty heavy in there. Chapter three, once again, when we're talking about symptomatology, typology, I actually want, I, there's a way in which I actually disagree somewhat with Deleuze there on the notion of typology and symptomatology. I wanted to push it further. I wanted to, you know, construe the image as almost like a living entity. I wanted it to be outside of typology, outside of symptomatology somehow. And I think that was the challenge. How, how can we move something as intimate as a fantasy image out of the reach of metaphysics and ontology? I think this is something that I didn't think of consciously at the time of writing it, but the more and more I reflect on it, I can see that's one of the things that I was attempting to do there. We can get get into that later, but I, um, I've had this kind of pseudo concept I've been kind of toying with of cinematic ontology that I think felt very much copacetic with what you were saying but yeah the idea of the crystal image is certainly mentioned in the cinema books i think particularly in cinema too but actually some of the most robust notes on it are from the seminars and i don't have the the seminar title i, I think it's in the bibliography but if that's something that you wanted to develop for yourself it's definitely worth going there i also find it really interesting that Deleuze actually credits Guattari with the creation of that concept, given the fact that Deleuze uses it so robustly. Feels like a Simon Doan origin yeah. or something like that is what I would have guessed. This goes back to the beginning of the talk when, Adam, you first brought up Hegel and the limit, but you incorporate this into something that we, we ourselves discussed. I mean, Coop just said Simon Doan the last time. I think it was the last time we talked to you guys. We talked a little bit about Simon Doan and we got into thermodynamics. I know that's been something that you've had an interest in and, and have elaborated, but you use this image, for example, of, uh, or maybe a conceptual image of the kettle, right? The kettle metaphor or analogy, if you mm -hmm. want to use that thermodynamically. And uh, you talk about this penultimate moment, right? Before the, the boiling over, if you will. I think you mentioned maybe even in passing when, when you were discussing Hegel a moment ago. So maybe you had that on your mind. But one of the things, since, we, since we're talking about Deleuze, I guess I'll bring it up. It reminds me in what, from A to Z, the abecedaire, right? The mm. B for boire, for drinking, right? When he's talking about, it's like the drunk or I guess the person imbibing, mm. you know, it's, it's not the last drink. It's, it's the next to the last drink, right? It's the penultimate one. Because the last drink is when shit goes bad you know at the limit death but or just collapse of the ability to perhaps drink the next day and continue that that cycle so i, I guess it reminded me of itself a kind of little life hack strategy but applied obviously in in, in antioculus applied at the level of let's say macro politics smaller mm. entities of of control I guess I was just wondering if you wanted to say a little bit about that thermodynamic view, which may be top down, or you can go into it more mm. and, and describe it in your own fashion. But I know this is early on in the book, and it helps to set up this discussion of control 
This is chapter two, which is called Burn Your Way Out, The Cybernetics of Revolt. And it's essentially the part of the book which teaches the, the reader cybernetics, the basic cybernetic concepts, feedback, both positive and negative, uh, feedback, you know, Net positive moves in accelerates in the direction of travel of a system, usually for, for worse ends. We're in, you know, a vicious circles, we typically call it. A negative feedback loop is more like, you know, you're steering a ship. You want to go to the right, but not too far to the right. So you move it to the right, then you gradually move it a bit left. Cybernetics, Kubernetes in the Greek comes from steering, but also where we get the terms like government. And the reason why it's called, so it's called Burn Your Way Out, it was, it was originally called the Thermostatic Hypothesis. It's like a tribute to, to Kuhn's book, The Cybernetic Hypothesis. The main question of that chapter is, how bad do things have to get before we start burning this fucking place down? And if things do get that bad, how do societal systems, how, how do they respond to that? It's not so much a thermodynamic thing for me. I think it is mostly this, I guess you can call it something like thermostatics, because what, why I choose the thermostat is because it is the quintessential cybernetic uh, example. Norbert Wiener uses thermostats, uh, thermostats, that's like it's German. Uh, <laughs> Jay Forrester uses thermostats. Everyone uses thermostats. It's essentially a system where it is the next stage in, in what Norbert Wiener talks about when he talks about two different kinds of engineering. Previously, you know, it was more about the, the more fundamental engineering problem was about power, power engineering, how to heat up a house. We've solved that. The problem is no longer a problem of getting fuel and getting the, the body of the heat warm. The problem is then, well, how do we know how to keep the heat at a regular pace? And therefore, when do we turn the heat off so it stops generating heat and then turns itself back on again at regular intervals such that heat can be maintained at a standard rate? Now, that is the thermostat because that's a problem of information, knowing when to turn things off. And I mean, this is, this is terribly delusional of me or just generally cybernetic. But I, I would even say that the kettle is not meant to be an analogy so much as the kettle as is a set of it's an example it, it is an analogy to the extent which it's an example of a thermostatic systemic relation of functions manifest in the kettle you boil for tea so you know you have a kettle you put it on there's a bimetallic and when you put the, put the switch on it connects a circuit the circuit comes on heat starts being generated through the coil the body of water is heated up some of that water is lost because steam is let off. You let off steam in order to regulate the temperature and also to signal when it's boiling, when it's actually probably boiled. And at the same time, within the, the, the switch, there's usually a bimetallic strip, which is its material properties mean that it bends at a certain temperature, usually a temperature of boiling, hence why it's used in the kettle. When it does that, it bends, breaks the circuit, circuit breaker. It is essentially a negative feedback mechanism. And at the same time, I think, well, this is very similar to how people regulate social intensity, social heat, social pressure when things are going bad. Not only do you have, you know, concessions in the form of elections, which, you know, try to stop things from boiling over, but also we have one of the main analyses here is the analysis of riot control, particularly the tactic known as containment or kettling. And I interviewed some friends who were kettled in the 2000, 2000 and might have been even 11 or the student uh, the student protests in in the uk and i was also studying some uh, counter demonstrations against fascists in honor oak in south london as well as anti-raids actions where police would be surrounded when they try to use their snatcher vans to deport people or put them in concentration camps which we have in britain for people who are arrested for so-called illegally coming over which is absolute nonsense but it's all about using the 
functional relations of letting off steam, sacrificing a part of the body to maintain control over it, which feeds into how we can translate the analysis of the thermostat, the main mechanism of negative feedback and pressure release into the social field. And I mean, going back to, as you said, I mean, the, the stuff on the limits from the, the Abbasé de Air for Deleuze, that is cited from the Thousand Plateaus rendition in the book. And it's the problem of information for a social control mechanism. And I'm not saying these control mechanisms are, we don't have central planners or anyone doing this, but roughly people know when to let off a little steam sometimes, or get the public to let off a little steam. That's why we have some governments declare like general elections, and that's why we have police kettling. That is a general fact of, of containment. That they use thermostatic principles, and if you read the book, they actually say they use that. Mm-hmm. But the penultimate moment for me is the penultimate moment is, is the last moment before all bets are off, before control is lost. And the problem of information, and for cybernetics, all problems of behavior are problems of information. Where is that penultimate point? Where is the last person we can actually? Well, where is the last place that we can? You know, the last person we can fuck over, we can kill before the streets are on fire. You know, and if that's the case, how do we how how do systems try to reimpose control, and then what are the limits in the way that they try to do that? It is interesting. It's very clear, and it's gotten me thinking a little bit differently about seeing not just at the macro level because you were just talking about how even though there aren't state planners, like we can imagine states concerned with this, but I just also see it in uh, individual behavior. I mean. Um, this is kind of a banal, silly comment, but I'm just thinking about we're all on on Twitter for better or worse, probably for worse, but seeing reactions to recent events in in Gaza, right? And and how individuals themselves with outrage or or whatever, it's a kind of it almost now I I can see it through the lens of of kettling, trying to like push back against let's all be civil and centrist and as though that were a viable strategy, just just keeping the status quo or or putting that forward as the rational, logical course to go. Now I, I kind of see it through the lens of of that thermostatic lens that you're 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 saying, and it it gives a different perspective. So I appreciate that. I think it's thank you. That's that's amazing to hear. I like this idea of the thermostat because for one thing, it really sharpens this notion of the way that air conditioning actually works because i think there's maybe a common sense perception that air conditioning works by by cooling things off the way that maybe a fan would by simply increasing the flow of cool air and i suppose that ultimately there is a certain like corollary there but it's more about like the coils absorb heat right the evaporator coils within the air conditioning system absorb the heat so it's about more about capturing heat than it is about producing coolness, if that makes sense. So I don't know. I just wanted to point out that little interesting. You talk a little bit about Deleuze's critique of common sense, and this is kind of a dumb little trite example of that. But, you know, I think it kind of works in tandem with this thermostatic governance idea. But I think this this notion of heat as sacrifice or waste, that's something that obviously really jumped out and grabbed me about this aspect of the book. So I don't know if anybody wants to get break out their George Bataille and tell us a little bit about heat and sacrifice and waste and kind of how that informs the book. If that's well, a fair the, question. The, <laughs> no, no, well, the, the chapter begins with a, that Bataille quote, the sacrifice is heat. 
it is just ripped from the pages of the Accursed Share Volume One. I mean, the reason why it's really simple is just the idea is that the you have to sacrifice part of a body in order to maintain its heat at a regular level or at regular intervals to maintain control. All this means is that, for example, kettles, you can't really get all that water back as uh, steam. A ultimately, you know, you it would be optimal to do so, but you sacrifice some of the water in order to maintain control over the, the mass of the body. And letting off steam is also not only, it's also social murder. And there's a, there's a point in which I react with particular disgust to Nancy Pelosi saying that George Floyd sacrificed himself so that we can all have this lovely awakening and, you know, uh, and it's disgusting. It renders it as something utile to the system, whereas actually the system maintains control by completely, you know, rendering human bodies completely superfluous to it, discarding them in order to maintain its own systems. It is the the reduction of people into, we, we, can we say bare life? I don't know, but bare life, I'm not as useful I mean, to that concept. I mean, bare life is absolutely a part of this, mm. right? Because what there is, is kind of a, a an ontological assumption of an energetics of life that lets this thing function. And that's one of the things that I think is helpful in the critique of the image of thought is that this is also a particular image of governance. And, you know, when Adam puts forward this thermostatic or thermostasis, this is not some sort of mechanism through which we find ourselves boiling over, but in fact, the grid of intelligibility that makes policing possible. It is what policing is predicated on. So like, you know, this book has the same relationship to that and to cybernetics. And cybernetics is an image of governance that took a long time to develop. And its connection, I think, and this comes through, and maybe this is where all three of us are kind of divergent, I don't know, that this has a lot longer history than just Norbert Wiener. It goes as far back as the physiocrats. And the physiocrats play, well, one particular French physiocrat plays a pretty important role in, in going astray and his relationship to vagabondage. Could I also add, actually, when the main inspiration, the reason I was thinking about this in terms of heat wasn't any kind of sort of Deleuzean love of the, you know, the vagaries of intensity. A lot of it came out of um, a discussion with uh, our comrade Violet about sort of the, something that she wrote on sort of the heat waves in India. And I was thinking about that in relation to the mass death from COVID and, you know, that's what well, the continuing mass death, but the sort of mass death that was constantly being reported. And the question was, you know, how bad do things have to get? How bad things are, and then especially when it comes to what portions of the social body are sacrificed literally in in heat itself, be it the fever of COVID, sort of the, the conflagration of American, British, and Israeli bombs, you know, in in Gaza right now, or the the social heat death of the fact that it's fucking twenty, it's it's summer temperatures in October in some parts of the world, and there's regular, it's gonna be regular forty degrees as we've reached one point five degrees of warming this year. It is the heat is the kind of the imminent political question because it also brings into the question of the maintenance of heat, control over the heat, and the model we have for controlling heat is always one that sacrifices parts of a heated body in order to maintain governance over the rest of it. I really love this quote. I'll go ahead and read: "Under thermostatic governance, the best kind of steam to let off is that which is let off without sacrifice." This is a banger. I don't know if anyone wants to kind of work through. The intricacies of that a little bit further, Adam, you might want to continue on. I love this notion here. Most cyberneticists, early cyberneticists, did not believe that you could have like a perfect controlled system. Although, but nonetheless, 
it was a regulative ideal, an idea which regulates the conduct, a tendency to making that map territory distinction just you know, flip. We can map it all that it can all be controlled. Not necessarily for, for evil means, I mean, you know, but just the idea of making your epistemological model as detailed as possible. And so you can make things work as efficiently and smoothly as possible. And so really, really what that meant was there's a tendency in which to map out everything such that it's not lost. You don't want systems to be lost. You want everything to be signal rather than noise. And even if you have noise, signals can be made rhythmically from noise. You have to render them in terms of patterns. You have to render them intelligible. That idea for me really just was the tendency towards perfectibility, which wants to sort of let off steam. But imagine like, you know, you've let off steam from the kettle, all the water is captured. Nothing is lost for its utility. It, you know, it gets, the steam gets hit by a condenser, the condenser comes back down, the minimization of loss in general. And I just want to add, one of the things that I think is super important about Adam's contribution is that it shows, at least for me, maybe other people knew this far better than, than I did before this, like what is necessary for a critique of productive productivism or productionism in metaphysics is not just a disdain for Anglo- utilitarianism, right, which we still kind of live under as a, as a paradigmatic approach, but rather precisely what makes utilitarianism possible, which means you have to have a particular ontology, a particular regional ontology. So I think essentially what, what Adam is doing is, again, giving a particular energetics that has been gestured to in communist discourses as much as capitalist ones and attempting to show precisely how this is possible. And I think that there have been some attempts to articulate it that have been pretty successful, like Marcuse's Soviet Marxism, or Foucault's The Punitive Society, or the Docile Bodies chapter in Discipline and Punish. But what, uh, you know, rather than just tipping the hat to Leibniz and Spinoza, etc., and saying like, oh, this is like productivism in metaphysics. Vitalism is not just an ontology, but in fact, something that is predicated by its own product. Like it's predicated on the very thing that it's trying to do, right? Which I guess is part of the image of thought, right? The dogmatic image of thought. So I think that what Adam eventually achieves for me is a very particular approach to the metaphysics of counterinsurgency and the metaphysics of productivism, rather than just critiquing it like Paul Lafargue, or, who, who I love, but you know. So Adam, I'm thinking about still suits in this regard, but I, I won't. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a still suit. I won't still take suit. us down the primitive steam. Yeah, we know the secret fifth port in the still suit. So let's <laughs> just say that let off steam without any sacrifice. We have Craig in a, in a second. Do you have any anything to add on this point? I think the way that I can be most helpful to this discussion is to talk about, and I think this is next on your docket, is the becoming imperceptible piece. Because I think what Will has mentioned a couple of times, and maybe even Adam has once mentioned, is this idea of an image of thought. And I think the image of thought and the attempt to undermine the image of thought is pervasive throughout the book in the sense that one of the strategies to undercut the technologies and apparatuses of cybernetics is to find the ways in which we can beat 
the sort of bipolarity or the evolutionary polarity and the truth schemas that they set up to, you know, or indexes, if you will. You know, there's a, a lot of ways that we can talk about this between yes, no, one and zero. Is it on the register or off the register? And talking about the ways in which cybernetics is even a pervasive concept. It, it goes, like Will says, it doesn't just start at, at Norbert Wiener. It goes back in time. It goes back to Marguerite Porette. It goes back to the you know, Inquisition. It goes back to witch hunts where enunciation of certain images or certain ideas don't map onto a commonly accepted schema, a moral schema or what have you, and ultimately result in the death or extermination of peoples. And so in that sense, when we talk about cybernetics in the book, there is this thread that is just meandering through these various concepts. And my hope was, is that we, you know, a reader would be able to make the connection like, ah, this is what they're trying to do. Not only are we talking about cybernetics and, and technology in the very sort of raw conventional sense of things, but we're seeing, you know, we're lifting up the hood on this and we're seeing this sort of epistemological nuts and bolts. I was thinking back to, you all said that you wrote in tandem the uh, intro and the, and the outro of the book, collaborating, discussing, conversing on, on Zoom, sort of writing it actively together. And it is interesting that the, uh, the conclusion of the book, you know, you try to reiterate some of the, the intro, wrap things back around. And um, it is interesting. I like this. What I liked about the, the, the outro was this idea is like, okay, you've read us discuss these strategies, these counter strategies, and you might at this point think that we are going to reject philosophy as one of these things that is either ancillary to struggle or is one could say like a bygone era or is, is always already contaminated in, in an image of thought. Right. And you reject that. And I thought that that was, that was interesting. Right. Because I do think that even from within philosophy, it doesn't even have to come up from outside philosophy there. We've, we've heard from some of the, the quote unquote, I just think about in the 20th century, how much philosophy itself was circling around this idea of the death of philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. As though it were, there was like a little bit of a nihilism, philosophically speaking, this navel gazing of, of its disappearance, um, its death, almost in a cer certain sort of nostalgia. And I thought that the, the end was a nice, you know, antidote to that type of reflection and the sort of the last you know the call of for you know creation in philosophy or the creation of concepts against the um the status quo the powers that be the way things are against you know being this call for becoming lest one be complicit i thought that that was an interesting twist to the the famous, you know, 11th thesis, the whatever. It's not about interpreting the world, it's about changing the world, but it's, it's, it's also about changing the world against the way things are, because there are ways of perhaps changing that could, could reinforce <laughs> conditions on the ground rather than compromise them or put, call them into question. So I thought that that was a, you know, and obviously we can circle back around to the to the middle and beginning, et cetera. But I, I thought the end, at least for me, it did 
leave on a on a good note left on a high right i guess maybe just if you want bounce off of whatever i've just said just reflect on on some of that that ending with that not necessarily a call to action i don't want to call it that that's cheesy but you you understand what i mean i'll say some things about that first i think that's something that adam primarily landed on that's always been something that's functioning within us as a group the fact that that appears in the book is is certainly Adam's responsibility or Adam's fault, if you will. But you know, who's who's counting faults and responsibility here? But th- as I said, this is an idea that has. I, I mean, you can even find this in places in, in Deleuze, like "What is the body without organs?" of a book. And here, we're just we're just coming right out and saying it. And to me, from a left wing perspective, nothing challenges the dogma of left wing thought than going right after Marx's theses on Feuerbach, right? So. I want us and, and the reader to think a little bit differently about that and also think of the book as its own kind of mechanism or apparatus that functions within the assemblage, transforms it, moves along with it, and can be transformed over time. And also, I, I think another important reason to elaborate or enunciate this idea within the book is just the incredible skepticism, if not nihilism, with which people often approach philosophy or theory after having been involved with it and frustrated with it and they lose that creative zest you know like there there are reasons that we were drawn to it because it, it it pulls on us in certain ways and sometimes we get lost in the mire but perhaps there's also a third reason why i think this is important because there's a kind of antinomy i think that at least in my case with this idea of acknowledging that that the book or the, the work is part of the movement now, it, it certainly puts in place or it opens a footprint for philosophy to come in to action and to remain part of it. But clearly, one of the things that we're trying to do is undermine things like metaphysics and ontology. So I really enjoy preserving that tension. That's something that's reflected in the imageless image. We go pretty heavy after psychoanalysis. But the one thing that we want to do is preserve the creative act. And the insights, you know, that have come with figures like Freud, Jung, and Hillman, that that sort of creativity. What it risks, however, is the sort of institutional trappings that come with the creation of the edifice of that institution and those disciplines. You know, the way that I see it is we're kind of navigating that that line a little bit. And, you know, maybe a question that the book kind of leaves us off with is at least the imageless image chapter is not what is a creative act, but which one is the creative act? How is this particular one? How is Antioculus or any other book for that example? How does that function in this assemblage? And, you know, what sort of lines of flight can it provoke? You know, what are the lines of escape? What are the avenues towards, you know, solidarity and and connecting with others? And I think amongst us here on Acid Horizon, we've never been skeptical about the work you know, that we call philosophy, even if we have it in the crosshairs. To also build on some of the stuff talking about the idea of a creation of concepts, in a sense, the final part of the book is both philosophical and in some sense, it's very anti-philosophical in terms of, at least this is, this is very much my view here, at least, that there's certain, most philosophy, there's a very huge chunk of philosophy which isn't worth doing and shouldn't be done because it's counterinsurgent, first and foremost. Calling upon everything to give an account of itself and giving an account 
of people who refuse to give an account of themselves, simply giving an account for them, is simply sort of you know serving a map of the territory here to the people who own the said territory and saying, go on, go for it. I mean, there's a certain kind of philosophizing, which is not about creating concepts, but it's about what I call jacking off. That is J-A-Q-ing off, just asking questions. And it, it doesn't understand communication, doesn't understand intellectual strategy, and it ultimately only serves the ends of our enemies by laying out maps and territories, sitting there in their armchair, wanking themselves off. And then people, it, certain things I don't think should be, I think there's a way of doing philosophy which essentially places the existence of our friends and comrades under question, or the use of philosophy by particular individual human beings who have connections in the world before they are declare themselves philosophers, you know, their politics precedes their being. And so there, there is no neutral philosophy, none whatsoever. I mean, in terms of uh, people might respond to the very sort of Deleuzean sort of catchphrase, I guess, of philosophy as a creation of concepts by saying, well, you've created this concept, but this is just like a Hegel concept. So I'm like, well, who gives a fuck? Oh, I'm sorry, you know, uh, you haven't done you haven't done a philosophy. You may have just reached similar uh, argumentations, fought through a process about, you know, your own subjectivity, but you didn't cite the right books and you didn't, you know, go for the institution and reference all the right historical progressions, even if you've made a similar motion, collecting and condensing all the intellectual tendencies in your own life to respond to something which is a problem for you, which you encounter in your own cognition, your own consciousness, and therefore your own social being. And indeed, to the limits of your social becoming. Who gives a fuck if they haven't read the right books? You know, they haven't read, read Hegel. They haven't been through the, the training, the discipline. I mean, the idea that philosophy is a creation of concepts is not simply saying that we must constantly be creating new concepts, you know, like we're creating the hot new thing. A lot of stuff in ocularity, the framing is new, the presentation is new, the vehicle is new. But a lot of it, I'm drawing on far more verse scholars than myself and condensing that into a response to a certain kind of problematic of the policing of identity, which... Fascists love doing autonomy these days. For example, the transphobic debate essentially is an attempt to force people onto an ontological mapping through the through proper medical, physical violence, the restriction of healthcare, and philosophy, and especially anglophone philosophy, needs to understand itself within the, the means of production of philosophy itself as a societal mode of communication. Otherwise, you're doing counterinsurgency from a middle class position of sitting in your armchair. You know, you need to philosophy presupposes the desire to philosophize you can't just export it to your diamond or to the oracle at delphi anymore like socrates i mean i just want to get back to maybe the the accusation that perhaps like we're pushing against the 11th thesis if if we are it's not in the sense of like resignation but in the sense that as i think foucault and deleuze understood thought and action are always interlinked. That in fact, that chasm between theory and praxis dissipates in, I think, most clearly in Nietzsche, but that to interpret the world, to lay out a grid of intelligibility, to give something a set of phenomena, to really circumscribe particular phenomena and make them that which need to be perceived is to fundamentally change the world. Because the way in which we are allowed to <laughs> manifest, to flourish, to act, that interpretation, as we, we see in, in um, Adam's account of, really of Hegel, in the counterinsurgency manual, it shows precisely the relationship between interpretation and subjectivity. That 
ocularity is an interpretive game. So to govern is, in a sense, to always be interpreting. Governing is a mode of interpretation that, without such an interpretation, would dissolve governance. So to say that, you know, so essentially what we what we are doing is, you know, measuring the measurer, we're dissolving the interpretation of the interpreter and trying to bring it to, to a state of indifference. How successful we are is up to, to everyone who has the, the misfortune of reading. Uh, it's not a misfortune. You should go buy the fucking book. Stop it. Being, stop being an emo. We go pretty heavy, or at least I do in the book, and I mean, we all signed off on it, against the idea of hermeneutics. And somebody's inevitably going to come back, well, aren't you doing hermeneutics? No, fuck you. I'm trying to do something different here, <laughs> right? <laughs> and even with it within the frame of a kind of discourse, you know, that's familiar to us, known as philosophy. And I think there is a conceptual persona that is, you know, fairly bombastic at the end, that is railing against the notion of interpretation and groping its way in the dark, trying to find something other to it. And insofar as anyone is able to recognize that, I think the book is a success. You kind of talked a little bit about the ocularity and becoming imperceptible already. I don't know if there's anything I'll, more that would be worthwhile into digging into that. I know that, Craig, you said you wanted to come back to the image without image, the imageless image. We did talk about this a little bit. You alluded to it and you wanted to come back to it. So I suppose we should do that for a moment because, you know, in the image of thought chapter, Div's repetition comes in the middle of the book towards the end of his life. You know, Deleuze writes a new preface for it, for the English translation or for mm -hmm. maybe the American edition. And his one thing is like, you can probably, you know, if there's anything to salvage from this book, it's, it's this chapter, right? Right, that's, right, that's, right? that's the chapter. And what's interesting, I was just kind of like glancing back through it today, just in preparation. What's interesting, right, is Deleuze is reflecting on thinkers like Artaud. He's reflecting on a whole host of thinkers in this chapter, but he comes up with this idea, perhaps a limit case, perhaps in a, an abstraction, if you will, but this idea of, of thought without image. And I guess that was where I would want to start perhaps with what inspired you to think about not necessarily inverting that and thinking of an image without thought, which mm -hmm. might be still a possibility. Maybe that's an addendum at some point, but this notion of an image without image, an imageless, imageless image, maybe talk a little bit about the genesis of that idea and sort of, if you recall, like the idea striking you, if not, you can, you can talk about it in, in more general terms. I'm just curious. No, absolutely. I think one of the goals of my part of the project was to foster this confluence between the work of Gilles Deleuze and James Hillman. First and foremost, I wanted to bring them into a conversation in a way which a lot of folks have not already done, with the exception of some folks who are friends of ours online, like Terence and Grant Maxwell, for example, who've done you know extensive work on it. But I wanted to think about the idea from the perspective of Hillman of an image of thought that even our philosophical ideas, that our philosophical images are in a sense 
an image of fantasy and just start from that place that, for example, if we have something like a dream and we take it into a psychoanalyst and they already have a, a framework, a, you know, an Oedipal framework or a set of archetypes or something like that, there's a series of tools or a series of images, prefigured images, with which the aleatory images of a dream you know, collide with, and thus we get something like an interpretation, you know, just roughly speaking. And so I thought, in what way is, you know, landing upon a philosophical idea or creating a philosophical concept, how is that like a fantasy? And in, in what ways are those fantasies controlled, manipulated, or prefigured by a hegemony of thought? And reflecting back on it, I never use this word in the text, but the imageless image is first and foremost a feminist text, now that I think about it. Given the fact that the leading avatar of the text is Marguerite Poret, you know, somebody who had this profound mystical vision, and when it came to light, she was persecuted for it, she was killed for it, and in the moment of her death expressed, you know, according to the onlookers, this incredible equanimity, which to me, that image itself is a political image that this book attempts to embody. The second feminist image of the book is the image of Deleuze's wife, Fanny, who struggled with anorexia. And it's interesting to note that, you know, Deleuze, in conversation with his wife, tried to develop some writing around this. And we do see this somewhat, anyway, in the chapter, or I'm sorry, within Dialogues or Dialogues 2. And what I did is a, a significant portion of the book is an extensive meditation on the ways in which the anorexic or the bulimic, as, as Deleuze sees it, is a kind of anti-cybernetics in the sense that, it, that the anorexic or the sufferer of anorexia attempts to escape an apparatus of capture that it's defined by patriarchy, that's defined by consumerism, defined by capitalism. And I mean, just on its face, the interpretation that Deleuze puts forward with respect to his wife is a, is a kind of psychoanalysis in a sense. However, it just runs counter to the Oedipal model. And it made me think, you know, the way that Deleuze articulates, for example, how his wife or, or any sufferer of anorexia, for example, would imagine something like worms or grubs or something in the food that would make it repulsive. And for a moment, it made me think that what if images had this insurgent quality to them? That rather than going to someone like a Jungian psychoanalyst, for example, who's going to help you take these images and lightly push you down a path towards individuation or goad you down a path towards a notion of individuation where one finds one true self and one incorporates all one's images and finds a sense of self firmly contextualized in you know, a given society with its governance, its modes of socioeconomic controls, where none of that's changed. What if the images were trying to escape that? And so the imageless image has to do with the ways in which these aleatory fantasies, which either appear in our dreams, our daydreams, in our writings, in our parapraxies, or just in our ordinary speech, for example, might be attempting lines of flight out of the system and finding ways to acknowledge or intensify that process in some way, and doing so in a way that perhaps challenges certain presuppositions upon which psychoanalysis of, of the many varieties are grounded upon.
And this is one of the things that James Hillman attempts to do, I think, somewhat successfully. I think there's ways, and we don't have to get into this. I'm actually working on this now. I think there's ways in which Hillman is a better Nietzschean than Deleuze in some senses. And then I think Deleuze is a better Nietzschean in some senses as well. But I think their shared Nietzscheanism is the one thing that allows us to sort of unsettle these dominant presuppositions about psychoanalysis that make psychoanalysis the capital form of images, of fantasies, right? And so here we're borrowing from Laruelle. And this idea of the imageless image and the image of thought pertains to not only the way in which philosophical ideas are grounded, but the very ideas with which we understand aleatory fantasies, psychoanalysis, are also grounded as well. And here we're not presenting a program for rethinking psychoanalysis, but I do want us to consider what it might be like to think of the images of fantasy as something non-utile or even anti-utile, almost like an entity, a word that I use is entification. And I, I steal this from, from Mark Fisher, in fact. Like, what if the images that we had compelled us in certain directions or in certain ways that could lead us to a form of enunciation that then could effectuate a kind of political escape? There's a lot to respond to in there. I'm, I'm thinking of a few things. One off the top of my head that I didn't want to lose before I get back to some of what you said about psychoanalysis was in, in anti-Oedipus, you know, which obviously has confluence with, you know, with what you're, what you're just speaking about. They have some interesting, I think it's mentioned maybe only two or three times, but this notion of, for example, right, when they first introduced desiring machines, breast, mouth, the organs cutting off, breaking off flows, but they also mentioned kind of in the same breath how the same machine can, you know, function otherwise as an anorexic machine. This discussion of anorexia in anti-Oedipus, which I think it only, I'd have to re-look, re but I think it only comes up two or three times in passing. And it always kind of seemed strange to me. Like there's one passage where I'm kind of thinking like, aren't you, don't you really technically mean bulimia? Not that it matters, but you um, bringing up and 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 your reading of, Deleuze's, his discussion of Fanny and her struggles and her actually deployment of anorexic as a, as a vehicle rather than merely being something she passively suffers under. That was fascinating. And maybe it sheds new light on those passages in Anti-Oedipus and contextualizes them, not to just do a biographical reading, but I'd have to go back with that in mind. But you know, what, what you kind of said about this notion that it, it does put to new light if philosophy or if the creation of concepts or if thinking is always if the instituting of a plane of eminence blah 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 if this always you know is concomitant with the genesis of an image of thought it is interesting to wonder about the images of thought that psychoanalysis presupposes and how that is you know as we've been discussing involves a politics so obviously and this gets back to something else. I think you all have said it, we could say, but this gets back to something else. Maybe it was you, Adam, when you were talking about, it reminded me of something, again, in Anti-Oedipus, where Deleuze and Guattari are like, it's not, we're not writing against the initial Freud, the, the discoverer and explorer, the creator of concepts, if you will, of the unconscious, of drives, et cetera. It's the Al Capone Freud, right? It's the racketeer. You mentioned the word edifice, which made me think, 
of anti-edifice or something like that, right? But it's that racketeering of psychoanalysis that can very quickly, in its many variants, get to a point where it's about where like the phrase enjoy your system symptom can become a pessimistic negative thing where it is about situating oneself on becoming content or at least resigned to the way of the world and so that's again speaking very generally is is some of the the things that your uh, your chapter got me contemplating I didn't want to rewrite anti-Oedipus. I mean, who really could? <laughs> but I think for me, the extended meditation of Deleuze and Hillman working alongside each other, the one thing that I did want to get out of that was I didn't want to dispose of the beauty that Hillman sees in the kind of poetic act that he learns from Jung and then transforms himself which I think Deleuze and Gattari do in their own way as well. Becoming animal, becoming woman, becoming imperceptible. These should be beautiful acts because they're acts of liberation. They're affirmative of life. And this is the one thing that I hope can also be recognized amidst you know, the kind of bombastic disparaging or lambasting of psychoanalysis. And so I'm still in that place of tension. And I understand, and I probably come down more on the side of a Foucauldian-like will at this stage in my thought and my life with respect to, you know, institutionalized forms of, of psychoanalysis and so forth. I mean, given the stakes right now in our world politically, you know, there might not be much time left for the kinds of lives that we think we are living. And, you know, something's got to give at some point, and we don't just need to be anesthetized, you know, from this sort of ongoing anxiety, rage, and impulses, something else needs to happen. You know, we need to open up this other vector where these images are not just tamed and given this sort of sense of, you know, a projected finality in, in the form of some kind of psychoanalytic individuation, you know, where we're, we're, we're chasing that. I would like to see, if, if there is a psychoanalysis, something more along the lines of what Deleuze and his wife are doing together. I think it's interesting the focus or I don't know, the preoccupation of psychoanalysis with images and how that sort of ties into the work of Deleuze. But I think also Baudrillard to make Will wince a little bit. Perhaps Deleuze and Baudrillard on this point share a little more common ground than most people would perhaps think in this register. You know, and I'm thinking about this quote here from the book, the cybernation and the communication revolutions have our extended our abilities to sense. And Taylor and I a few months ago read Virilio's War and Cinema book, which was really interesting at going through this kind of history of the way that there's been this coextensive development of the technologies of perception as it pertains to both war and then cinema. I even went as far as to say that, like, maybe there's some type of ontological status of the cinematic itself that it ties to the image of thought. I, I'm trying to think of a way to articulate that like there's some type of um i don't know maybe it is just this thinking in terms of images that traps us into this or like this whole kind of representational mechanism that yeah. i suppose regulates our ability to generate freedom or something of that nature or to 
disrupt the flows of the system or something along those lines? The simple response to that, not that there is necessarily a simple one, is <laughs> when we think about the crystal image you know, that we see in Cinema 2, for example, or in, in the seminars, this concept of the crystal image as an evocation of the powers of the false, you know, it, it's sort of first order approach to, or it's first or initial approach or its initial strategy or the initial strategy that can be employed when thinking about this particular concept with respect to cinema is the idea that time can be reorganized, right? We don't have to live within the constraints of linear time with respect to the image. And then that raises the question, well, what else? And so in what other ways does the creative act that Deleuze attributes to this, this concept, how can that then restructure sense, value, and so forth to produce new forms of life or release forms of life that are trapped or suppressed in certain ways? And I think this is one of the things that James Hillman really wants us to do with his version of archetypal psychology is he's challenging the unions who have entrenched themselves in a very sort of orthodox approach to thinking about dreams in terms of archetypes and so so on and so forth to the extent that when somebody comes into analysis and you know starts telling their story they start telling their dreams it becomes simply a matter of typology or, or symptomatology like oh it's a lot like this have you read this particular greek myth yada 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 you might want to think about this movie against this fairy tale and so on and so forth where all the juice is in the image itself I think both for Deleuze and for somebody like James Hillman and for the artist, the cinematographer, the, the director, you know, how can we think about a particular scene? How can we think about the tools for creating cinema, for example, in a way that pushes the envelope? Growing up as, as a teenager in the, the 90s, seeing a movie like Pulp Fiction was revolutionary for me to see that somebody could do that with a film by putting the scenes temporarily out of order, it, it creates this new effect, a kind of discombobulation, which you never really come out of until the very end. But then, of course, there is this feeling of, of panic right at the end of the film. My question would be, how can that dynamic be pushed even further beyond the psychoanalyst couch, beyond the editing bay, but into the realm of politics and beyond? I do reference some people in the book who have tried to take, for example, Hillman's method of imagining and sticking with the image into a more communal space where they talk about the way that, for example, land and other natural or ecological resources are used and people gathering in a space and doing this sort of poetic image work as a way to elicit all kinds of feelings, emotions, tensions, ideas, and so forth, rather than just going on with this sort of procedural city council democratic way of doing things, which just re-territorializes all the very same powers that we're struggling against anyway. At least that's an attempt. And so I think one of the things that I'm trying to do is find a way out from underneath that. That kind of makes me think about how great an example the film Memento would be for something like that discussion not only because the way that time is reshuffled in that film and kind of like follows this weird place where it like starts at the end and the beginning and meets in the middle of the narrative, but also in the way that the main character develops their own, the way they utilize powers of the false to do the reverse, to give themselves a sort of 
finding the meaning within the chaos by removing information, by negating data, if we want to be that bold, perhaps. But so I don't know if there's a, necessarily a question there, but I think that brings to mind just an interesting discussion, perhaps for maybe for cinematic ontology or, or something of that nature. It's interesting to think, in a way, Deleuze's ideas are somewhat antiquated with respect to all of the films that have been created since the time that these books have been written. Synecdoche, New York, and and, and even like those films that play interstellar that not only play with time, but play with dimensionality and, and so on. You know, since we're talking about cinema, this kind of struck me very powerfully as with regard to cinematic ontology or just like, I guess, the paradigm of standard cinema in the sense that these are disparate moments of lost time which are then reconstructed in a narrative fashion i mean that is cinema so interestingly in the way that those i don't know the way that time plays this role i suppose in developing like that i don't know there's something about the way that time is mobilized relative to maybe it goes back to the true right and the powers of the false and the way that time is mobilized but i can't quite i can't quite articulate this into a question this quote just kind of struck me as like a really great succinct yeah. way to describe what films really are with the media of film it seems that one of the most i don't know accessible go-tos in terms of like sort of manipulating the fabric of the medium itself is by manipulating time you know with the advent of cgi and other things like that now we can do much more on the screen than we ever could before. But I think where the image of thought comes in and, and the imageless image and the powers of the false, which I kind of, one of the ways that I imagine this is this sort of inchoate soup of not yet defined axioms and polarities and so forth. It's this sort of like soupy agon of all of these yet to be formed ideas it raises the question of like, what else can you do with a movie? And what else can a movie do? People have tried to play movies and, you know, sort of art installations and spaces like that. When is there going to be, for example, this perforated border between film and reality in the sort of Baudrillardian sense? I mean, we're kind of living that now too. Like even as recent as yesterday, just going online and going into film communities where they analyze Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or Goodfellas, all kinds of movies, and just seeing the, the relationship that people have with films these days, interacting with them. And, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that if you work for like Netflix or Hulu or something like that, that their staff, they're combing through YouTube comments, that the level of interactivity is such now that that sort of imaginary barrier that stood between the viewing populace and the creators of films is now completely porous in some sense. And also to the extent that which any of us can upload a, a whole movie to Vimeo or YouTube or create a radio station or create a podcast. And so there's a way in which I think the body without organs of cinema and of just media in general is constantly transforming. I think video games are an interesting way to think about the evolution of this too and the even further delving into the kind of cinematic ontology of what does it do whenever we can act we can create a sacrifice without or we can dissipate heat without a sacrifice in a sort of virtual reality sense you know something like what are the games blanking on the name of the super popular game where you commit the crimes and all that what is it vice city uh Ah, yeah, a uh, uh, Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto, right? Yeah. There's something 
about that. And because you know what I mean? Like it feels like and maybe this is just I mean, it's likely bias, but there's something that video games do to maybe it's our sympathy or something like that. Or mm. there's something about the ontological structure of the video game that I don't know. Yeah, it it has that both that aspect of dissipating the heat sacrifice without consequence to a certain degree, but also, I don't know, almost like more embedding us in, the, I don't know, there's something about sympathy and others and and distance that's involved that, I don't know, just came to mind. Like screaming fuck you at somebody on Call <laughs> of Duty. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and there's... then instantly turning it off and answering the phone. Oh, yes, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, about the job interview, I'm there. I often think about, my dad tells me that, like in 1976 or 77, I think it was 76, when Rocky came out, how it just had an incredible sort of cathartic impact on people. And, you know, he said up until that time, he's like, I never had a movie experience like that until then. And I mean, something can be said this, about The Exorcist too, in the way that it just really, you know, just thrust itself into the imagination of people. The way that I imagine that with respect to the image of thought is that it kind of creates this upper limit. You know, we have this sort of hundredth monkey thing, like where now we've seen a film do this. Now the question is, what else can it do? Or what else can the medium do? Or how can it transform? And I mean, since then, we've had films become video games and we've had video games become online communities and online communities become... YouTube channels that then go through the histories, the retro gaming, and so so on and so forth. So it's almost as if th these tendrils are constantly separating and connecting. And there's a way in which I think the powers of the false with respect to the way that we think about media and creativity within media might be operative there. I don't I don't have any of these ideas worked out. This, this is kind of a riff, but certainly I see that that when we think about creativity and like what is a creative act. I think one of the things that Deleuze leads us to, maybe more so than Hillman, is that getting beneath what Deleuze would call judgment and back into the creative, which is, you know, finding where within our presuppositions about the nature of a creative act, the nature of creating within a particular kind of media, how can that be bent or broken even further to produce something that's enlivening? It's interesting that you brought up your father's experience of Rocky, because if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but I, I believe that Rocky was one of the first films to utilize what eventually became Steadicam. Now, wow. it wasn't used very extensively, but I believe it seems like more likely in the fighting, the boxing match scenes, perhaps that kind of makes logical sense. You know what I mean? In terms of trying to capture that in a very intimate or different way, maybe that added some type of viscerality or, you know, something more true, let's say, in quotes, to the yeah. experience. I think there's a lot of interesting movements like that in the history. I'm, I'm not a cinema guy. I'm not a film guy. I, I don't even call it cinema or film. They're movies to me at the end of the day. <laughs> when I was young, maybe you're about the same age as me, yeah. Taylor, too. So you remember like the original Lord of the Rings cartoons? Oh, yeah. And remember how it was like a blend of live action and, and animated cartoon action? Yeah, they to did rotoscoping that, of the... Yeah, it was kind of rotoscoping effect. Like, I think one of the reasons that remains so memorable is the uncanniness of that experience. And for us, they always played it around like Thanksgiving or Christmas. 
So usually the family was around, you had a few days off from school, and you'd just be immersed in this fantasy image that was imagined in a way that was so novel. Of course, it was impressionable. And I think, you know, when we think about like creative acts and transforming the medium, I think we're using this word quite a bit, but the idea of a confluence between the medium and the particular subject matter in that case of Lord of the Rings, which is like this traditional Anglo-American it's British, but it's it's firmly within, you know, the American mythology now, too. Like, it, it really created something. Whenever the Nazgul appeared, I had to turn it off. But Oh, you mean the old one? Yeah, yeah. The one yeah, you're talking no, about, the, the cartoon, it freaked me yeah. out when I was a kid trying to watch that shit. Like I said, completely uncanny. Because it was it was like the cartoon was coming to life. Yeah, exactly. How did we get here? I don't know. <laughs> it's, my, <laughs> it's my fault, uh, purely. Anti-Oculus. Apologies, right? I think that this is the the part where outro and plug and also tell us about what the future lies in store for for you three. We'll give it to Adam and Will. I've been talking a lot. So the book is out next Tuesday. You can get it from Penguin Random House. Loads of bookstores have got it in. You can get it in foils. Get some big ones. Probably a lot of indie ones as well. Anywhere it takes repeater because it's quite an independent sort of publisher, an indie style publisher. There's going to be a live event, at least one in November in London. Houseman's Books in King's Cross, November the 18th. That's a Saturday night. Future books. So we've got the Zero Horizon series. We've just be- we're just finishing up a book by Ian Allen Paul, who people might know from our, uh, you know, our Arkham Prisons, our computers prisons episode. Our, our prisons, our prisons computers. Yeah, sorry, important. Yeah, very important. <laughs> it's cited a lot in our book as well. And in terms of any future books, I mean, there's a possible rumblings about some tarot related stuff, I guess. And there's also I'm doing the forewords to Mark Fisher's PhD thesis that will come out sometime next year, and then. There's a solo thing as well, yeah. There's a, a new book on cyber theory and social media called The New Flesh or Simulacra and Stimulation. What else we got going on, guys? One or several niches is in progress. And so we turn that in, in the, at the end of summer next year. So that's something that we're working on collaboratively with about four people. But it's going out as Acid Horizon with guests. We have some other manuscripts. I, I just got a manuscript today that we didn't want to take on anymore. At least I didn't want to until the beginning of uh, next year, but I hope we can get this. And so it's a translation. And uh, hopefully in the future, I don't know, maybe maybe Cooper, maybe Taylor, maybe there'll be a book on Zero Horizons at some point. I'm bugging people about Laruel translations and maybe some other Frenchy stuff too. So You haven't bugged me about that. No, I did. What The what is grounding? Well, okay, yeah, you, you did, but I that that's already been translated, right? So that was something where Yeah, but I wasn't sure we weren't sure if that was the official translation, but it looks like it might be. I think so. Yeah. Um but Sadly. you know, there might I mean if there's gosh, I'm just trying to think. I'm sure there's there's plenty of stuff if you're if you're accepting translations, we can Yeah, we, and we can talk about stuff. I mean, as I understand it, accepting translations is it's hit or miss. Translations evidently don't do well on the market, typically, unless it's something really special, you know, whether or not you can get money for something. For example, that that book, um, Bataille's The Limit of the Useful that we did an episode on, that was a work of love. Just two guys going for it. And then they got lucky by emailing the wrong person about it. And they're like, yeah, we want to publish that. And uh, I saw it at Strand Bookstore. So nice. That particular translation is doing well, but I'd like to see a translation of Laruel's work on Nietzsche. 
at some yeah, point. Yeah, Nietzsche contra Heidegger. That'd be great. For sure. Yeah, that's and that's one of those things where I was thinking like what would be if I were to do Laurel, what would be the thing I would pitch to a publisher? And mm-hmm. it'd probably be something like that because it's got Nietzsche Heidegger in the title and exactly. that that's a commodity. That's yeah. the kind of bullshit you have to think about when you're Absolutely. Um anyway. That's something that we can talk about down the road too. Um, because I often go back now to your blog post where you translated chapter one. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's kind of an interesting, it, 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 it ends on a cliffhanger. You're kind of like, you get a little bit of a hook and you're like, what the, f- what the fuck else is going to come from the rest of the book? That's publisher bait. You got to send that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the, uh, that's, that's the thing because it is, it is, it is an interesting especially with Nietzsche being back in the in the discourse lately with his relevance for the left and the Lesordo book and all of this stuff. I yeah. think about that too, the opening to Laura Wells' book where he kind of already had demolished that framework of, of looking at Nietzsche left, right, center. Yeah. Any case, uh, I know we're, we're off, but it sounds like there are a lot of projects and, um, and that is exciting. I know we can try to coop. You're obviously on top of this, but there'll be plenty of show notes we can add in. So whatever, whatever you'd like to uh, make sure you get coop all the relevant information to, to add the info to this episode and dear listener, uh, go, go subscribe to, um, to asset horizon on however you get your podcast, YouTube, Apple, SoundCloud, I thought we do a podcast. I didn't so advertise. We, we that. do a podcast. <laughs> I, I mean, that was one thing you guys left out. I figured I would, I would at least pitch that to the break. So it's like a given, you know. Asset arise. We know who they are. Yeah, those guys. So go subscribe to those guys. Thank you both, uh, Cooper and Taylor. Thank you very much. Wonderful having oh, you all. We have, a, at, of course, nice reservation at pub. Adam oh. and I had talked like six months ago about. Mm. This Dune project because I feel like I need someone. I need a partner I that can like. I'm gonna uh, give so much fucking money. <laughs> you guys got to like, split. Yeah, we got to head off. We can meet some people at the pub. But yeah, yeah. the Molly's for organ thing basically it was Butler and Jihad for abstract machines. But oh, uh, yeah, yeah, there we go. On it. Yeah. <laughs> We're currently using a tether, so we're also burning through most of Will's money in data now. now. But yeah. uh, folks, thanks, nice. thanks again. So fucking poor. We'll, we'll catch you later. All right. All right. Bye, well, guys. Yeah. Yeah, if if you guys want to hang for a little bit, yeah, we can talk about some book sure. stuff just for a little bit. Oh, they, right. they they left. They're frozen in time. Yep, yep they're gone. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, seriously, Taylor. Um, I think I talked to Jeremy about doing a Laruel translation, of course, and I might have mentioned the need, but I then I it was only later that I realized that you did that first chapter. Um, right. I don't know. Do you, what do you have on your plate now from now until whenever? Well, I just turned in uh was a week and a half ago the uh-huh. uh non-standard philosophy. That's that's the big that's a five hundred page book from Laura Well. And yeah. I'm next week I'm turning in um the Deleuze book by Axel Chernyovsky. I've got twenty, thirty pages to translate for the the Simon Dome project I'm finishing up in December. Yeah. That's that's pretty much done. Yeah, and the only other thing I've got is a, a short translation of one of Cavalier's works on axiomatics, which is oh a, cool. So, so you do math now? Well, I mean, I'm 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 doing whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
it's really more philosophy. I mean, mathematics is just the, I mean, to a certain extent, he's a philosopher, at least in his writing, like the math informs it in terms of, um, you know, in terms of Nietzsche contra Heidegger. Yeah. I mean, that was something I had thought about. I just hadn't thought about a, a publisher. I'd definitely be down to, to do it. Laura Wells sent me his personal copy of Nietzsche contra Heidegger when I oh, last really? talked to him. He signed wow. it. And, sent that my way oh wow cool uh, his wife was like his wife was like this is our one copy but here <laughs> you can have it you're gonna make better use of it you know oh, it's wow. just sitting that's on our sick. shelf and i was like fucking fucking a so yeah i mean that's i know that like for example if jeremy could get the fucking rights from petra editions he's got the book that comes right before non-standard philosophy the one that i just turned in the introduction to generic sciences i mean he's got he's got a draft translation of that done he does uh, Okay. You know, he just can't, he's on a first name basis with Anne Francois, Francois, his wife, and they just can't get the, uh, can't get Petra to like even respond. So if you can't, if you can't get the rights from the original French publisher, that's just a roadblock. And the, I mean, I think the fucking press that did Laura Wells, Nietzsche contra Heidegger is Payo. And I've never uh, seen them. I've never seen any other, I've never seen anybody else use that press. So who even knows if they're still extant or if they okay. got subsumed or uh, now if, if they aren't extant, that means that the copyright, which Laura Wells never lost, but that means like there would be no, anyone could, could publish it. Ah, right. That's right. basically how how it would go. Now there may be some other laws, like international or, or French wise, that might be some weird loop that I don't know about. But Craig, great job today. It was great getting the the group together, getting the band yeah. back together, and uh, we'll be in touch. See you, Taylor. Have Bye, a guys. Break. Just want to thank the Acid Horizon crew for joining us today to discuss Antioculus, and that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machine to Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor the Afton. The rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is unconscious. The whole state of things, the flow of violence without object This is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.